What does the Holy Spirit do? This semester, in the times that the president is speaking in chapel, I told you at the very beginning of the semester that we would be talking about the Holy Spirit and looking at different biblical texts about the role of the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen the fact that sometimes the work is contributed to the Holy Spirit that is not of the Holy Spirit. We know some things He doesn't do. Uh, We've already looked at some of that. We have also already looked at the fact that we need the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the fact that sometimes when there has been a pendulum swing of, of attributing works that are not of the Holy Spirit to the Holy Spirit, sometimes when the pendulum comes back the other way, people don't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the danger of that. The fact of the matter is, is that we need the Holy Spirit as, his, as the children of God. We are a child of God, and, and therefore I'm no longer a slave to fear, but fear confronts us all the time, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit that helps us through those. There are so many things that the Holy Spirit does for the believer, but there are also things that the Holy Spirit does for the unbeliever. Today, in our study of the Holy Spirit, we are shifting gears for the rest of the semester. We're going to be talking about what does the Holy Spirit do every time that that I come before you in preaching in a regular chapel service. Today, we start with understanding a truth that is often misunderstood. And that is this, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit not only works in the lives of believers, but the Holy Spirit works in the lives of unbelievers. Did you know that? I want you to open your Bibles with me where we ended last time, and that is in John chapter 16. We noted last time that John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus in these chapters, as He has given His last instruction to His followers before His arrest, how that He talked about the importance of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, indeed, we begin uh, our our last section of verses that we looked at last time began in verse 5, of chapter 16 where it says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I said to you these or said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And we looked at those verses last time. We said, listen, Jesus said it's actually better that Jesus ascend to heaven, that He ascend to the right hand of the Father, and as He promised that He and the Father would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, another like Him, to live in us. And we, we talked about that joy and, and the fact that when Jesus took on human flesh and was here on earth, He could only be in one place at a time. But by Him returning physically to sit at the Father's right hand, And sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can be in all of us at once. He is in me right now, and He is in those of you clear in the back of the room if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. And He's with our brothers and sisters in in Iran. And He's with our brothers and sisters in Africa. And all over the world, everyone who has trusted Jesus, He can be with all of us at once. And He said, that is such a blessing. But then in the very next verse, as He rounds out this paragraph, Jesus shifts the focus beyond the believer, beyond those who were just listening to them. And he says this, when he comes, verse 8, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Here Jesus now says, listen, I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit is not only working in the believer, not only is He your helper, not only is He your comforter, not only is He your encourager, not only is He your, your advocate, not that, that all the things that are wrapped up in that word we looked at last time, paraclete, but when He comes, He also is going to be at work in the world. Now, we see that it says that He will convict. How many of you have ever heard someone say, it's not your job to convict, that's the Holy Spirit's job? Has anybody ever heard that? Uh, how many of us have ever said it? I've said it. I have to raise both hands. I've said it many, many times. Actually, the word that is used here for convict means to reprove, and it's actually used as a command to preachers, to a preacher, to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul tells him to preach the word, convince and rebuke. It is the same word that is used here. There is a sense that as believers, when we are sharing the Word of God with others, there is a rebuking that comes from the Word of God. But folks, I want you to understand something. The Holy Spirit convicts in a way that you and I will never be able to do. We can and should speak the truth. And many times when we do speak the truth, people say, hey, you can't judge me, you can't convict me. And listen, if you're doing it in your own authority, they're right. But when you stand and speak the truth of the Word of God, that does bring rebuke. That's exactly what Paul told Timothy his job was. But you as a preacher, you as an individual talking to another person, when you are one-on-one -on -one or teaching a class or from a pulpit, you can speak the truth, and in doing so, you will rebuke. But there is a way that the Holy Spirit rebukes that goes far beyond anything that we have the ability to do. In fact, very often when we rebuke, people reject what we say. Unless the Holy Spirit takes that rebuke and adds to it in a way that I cannot explain and neither can anyone else. It is a work of the Spirit that is absolutely beyond our understanding. He says that he will convict the world. Now, I do know, and if you don't, if you have not run across this, you will. I do know that there is much discussion about what the Bible means when it talks about the world. For instance, in John 3:16, for God so loved the world. What is it that God actually loved? And there's all kinds of discussion about what it means. Of course, you know the word. Those of you, some of you had a Greek exam this morning, your midterm. And I'm not sure if cosmos is uh, one of the words you've already had or not, but I think it is. Uh, and so uh, you know the word. Uh, we get our English word cosmetology from it, okay? But the word cosmos means an ordering. It is actually used most often to describe all of the universe or really all of creation. Certainly the, the earth in which we, where we live very often, it includes everything that is in the earth. Mounts, in his definitions, actually argues in his dictionary that, that the word cosmos also, though it means all of creation, 
carries with it in the Old Testament a distinction between the Jewish nation and the rest of the world. So if you were of, of the faith, if you were a Hebrew who is following God of the faith, you were not considered part of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. And Mounts also argues that in the New Testament, the same distinction is made, but not with Israel. It's those who are part of the Christian body, those who are part of the church. And very often as you read through the New Testament, there's a distinction made between we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Also, the word world often means the world system that is against God within its context. Very clearly in this context, he is speaking of unbelievers that are in the world. In fact, you can see that very carefully if you will look with me. He says he came to convict the world of sin, but notice what he says about that in just a minute. He says at the, in verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. So if they do not believe, they are, by definition, what? Unbelievers. And so what he is saying here in this context is you need to understand the Holy Spirit is coming as your advocate, as your helper, as your paraclete. But that's not the only thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in the earth. In fact, many theologians will believe, will argue, as I would, that in 2 Thessalonians, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is actually the restrainer that is keeping the world from completely going off its hinges. And the, He will continue to do so until He releases His hand and then the Antichrist will come and so forth. But here we see very specifically Jesus emphasizing the Holy Spirit working in the lives of unbelievers. I want you to understand that I, the Scripture is absolutely clear that you can't even become a believer unless the Holy Spirit is working in your life as an unbeliever. There is a work that He can do that we cannot do. Very recently, Tyler was telling me about something he had seen online of someone talking about, I saved someone. You know that we emphasize sharing the gospel here. You know that we are doing all kinds of things to help us all understand that that's all of our jobs, whether you're in the business department or whether you're a church planter or any of the, anything else. Even, in fact, if you're not in one of the programs that we teach at this school, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you have a responsibility to be a part of bringing other people to faith in Christ. But in this, in this statement that Tyler had ran across and he shared with me, a person said, I saved someone. Folks, we can save no one. We can save no one. We can actually speak the truth of the gospel. And yes, faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word, but it never becomes effective until the Holy Spirit of God takes the word of God and applies it to the heart of the unbeliever in such a way that their eyes are opened. It takes the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the salvation of anyone. It cannot be done on an individual's authority. And it must be the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's very clear how he does that work. We see it right here in the text. He says, first of all, that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin. 
He will convict the world of sin. Now, if you have shared your faith very often, you have run across people that are in a couple different categories. One, they don't really think they are sinners. They think that other people are sinners, but hey, how many times have I heard this one? I know I don't, I'm not perfect, but, and I ain't never killed anybody. I've been faithful to my spouse. I mean, I'm not so bad. And they do not realize they are a sinner. Listen closely to me. Beware of any gospel presentation that does not reveal the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And our sin is serious. Listen, if you are getting people to pray a prayer and they don't understand they're a sinner, they don't even know why they're repeating the words that you are telling them. The fact of the matter is, it takes the convicting work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God to show someone that they need to be saved. He says that, it, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. It will show them that they are sinners, that they fall short of the glory of God, that they have missed the mark, that they are, cannot uh, earn God's favor, they cannot earn his a relationship with him and we certainly don't deserve it because all of sin and come short of the glory of God there is none righteous no not one all we like sheep have gone astray everyone has turned to his own way we are sinners before a holy God and we must be convicted of that fact several years ago when Cindy and I worked at a children's home we uh got to have a lot of fun. We, we raised uh, 10 boys at a time. Uh, we would rotate them. Uh, but we had 10 boys, kindergarten through fourth grade. It was a lot of fun. Uh, they were from all different cultures. Uh, we had some, some kids, we would get them, and, and they were just learning English. And so that was always fun. Uh, and, you know, Ezekiel sometimes tells me, I don't understand uh, what you mean by that American statement. Well, I understand that. Because uh, we had some boys from Ethiopia, one of them was all dressed up, and I told him one day, you look sharp, and he's like touching the top of his head. He thinks I mean there's something pointing up, and he's just sticking up in a sharp, you know, and so, so I get that, but we had a great time there. One of the fun things that we got to do was ever so often when they, you know, the schedule would slow down a little bit, we had an indoor swim pool, and we'd take the kids down, and we'd go swimming. And when we go swimming, uh, we had a deep end and a shallow end to the pool. And the rule was you couldn't go on the deep end until you passed a test. And so at the time, I had been through lifeguard training and those kinds of things. So I was, I, I was given this test. And what I made them do, it was an Olympic-sized pool. So they had to swim across, not all the way uh, the length of it, but across the width of it. They had to go across. They had to come back to the middle and then they had to tread water for 30 seconds in the middle of the pool. And then uh, I would wave for them to come on back or holler, come on back. And they had to then swim back to the edge of the pool. We had this boy named BJ and he always, man, he just always bugging me. B, uh, Mr. Ballard, Mr. Ballard, I want to go in the deep end. And I'd keep telling him down the shallow end, BJ, you're just not ready. You need to keep working on it. And I'd work with him. He's just getting frustrated and frustrated. And I knew he wasn't ready, but finally... One day I said, you know what, I've had enough of it. I'm just going to show him. And Miss Ballard wasn't too sure about my idea. 
But uh, she stood right next to me to make sure she was ready to tell me to get in there if I needed to. And so we get BJ, and I bring him down. I say, okay, BJ, here's what you do. You swim across, you come back to the middle, and, and there you go. You know, you tread water, and when I tell you stop, I got the stopwatch here. And when I tell you stop, then you come back to me. And he said, okay. And he dives in, he swims, man, like a maniac across the pool. He swims back to the middle. He starts treading water. I mean, he's just, he, he's like so confident. He's got this thing made. And then I said, after 30 seconds, come on back. And he started to come back and he just sunk. And so he's marked. And I'm, I'm watching. He comes back up and he's treading water. And he, I said, come on. And so he starts to go, and then he sunk. And then he starts treading water. And he's treading water. And every time I tell him to come, and he could not, and, and I knew this when we took him down there, he had not figured out how to move from treading water back to swimming. Now, he was absolutely confident until the fifth time that he went down. And when he came back up. And every time, so he's like, you better get him, you better get him. But when he came back up the fifth time, for the first time, I could see that he realized he couldn't do it on his own. And I dove, and I was there in seconds, and picked him up with one hand and held him above the water as I swam back and set him on the side. We made sure he was taken care of, and I said, now, BJ, you understand, you can't do it on your own. But if you'll listen to what I'm trying to teach you on the lower end, in a matter of a couple weeks, you'll be right down here with the rest of your friends. That's a small illustration. When you're going through lifeguard training, they teach you to make sure that they know they need you. Otherwise, they'll fight you and they'll bring you down and you'll both die in the water. The fact of the matter is, is people must understand they are in trouble before they can ever be saved. They must understand that their sin is absolutely serious before they could ever be forgiven of their sin. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Not only does the Holy Spirit convict of sin, He tells us why He does this. And I want you to look at it with me as we look down to verse 9. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Now, why would he say that? Because if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then your sins that were a scarlet have been washed white as snow. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, every time the Father looks at you, He sees you just as if you had never sinned and just as if you had always done right. Because He's not looking at you through your ability. He's looking at you through Jesus' ability. You see, the fact of the matter is when Jesus was on earth, as He was tempted in all points like as you and I are, because He was 100% man. But He is also 100% God, and therefore He never sinned. He fulfilled the entirety of the law. In fact, in teaching one day, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. And when Jesus went to the cross, He had no reason to die. Because He had completely filled the law. 
There was no wrath upon him because he never sinned. And yet, he took upon himself your sins and mine. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. But the Lord, the Father, laid on him the sin of us all. Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. He suffered the wrath of God upon sin for you. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again. And he offers salvation, forgiveness of sin to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust Jesus and Him alone. If you believe in Him, if you are resting in Him, if you're trusting Him to be your guide, if you're trusting Him to forgive you of your sin, then at that moment, the Father has declared you righteous. There is no more reason to worry about your condemnation. You are no longer a slave to fear because you are a child of God. But, if you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not believed in Him, if you have not trusted Him, then the Spirit is convicting you of sin. Next, we see that He not only convicts of sin, but notice what He says, and of righteousness. So back in verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. Now, why is he distinguishing that? If I'm convicted that I am a sinner, what is this deal about being convicted of righteousness? Listen, there are many people who don't deny that they are sinners. Rather, they say, my sin is not that bad. They, they, there are men, some who say, no, I've never sinned. I was visiting a guy one time in, uh, in Virginia, and I went to his house. He had members of his family that were saved and part of the church that I was pastoring. This guy, uh, once in a great while, came to a church event, but he wasn't saved. And uh, I went to visit with him, and I started sharing the gospel with him. And he said, well, I'm not really a sinner. And I said, what? No, no, I'm not really a sinner. Well, he needed the Holy Spirit to convict him of sin. But a guy just down the road from him, not very far, in fact, about just three houses down, uh, that man, his, his wife was a believer and came to our church, and I went to visit him one time, and, and he acknowledged right away, I know I'm not perfect, I know I sin, I know I don't do right, but you know what? I'm a whole lot better than a lot of those people that go to your church. See, his problem was not that he didn't know he was a sinner. His problem is that he didn't understand the righteousness of Christ. See, he was comparing himself to other people. And when we compare ourselves to other people, we can always find people who are worse than we are. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. We need to understand what righteousness is. We need to understand that, hey, God is righteous. There is no shadow of turning with Him. And because He is holy, because He is righteous, and also, by the way, because He is just, which is part of the definition of this word that we see here, it's not only that He's right all the time, but He is also just. And because He is righteous and just, He must punish sin. Folks, that is a work of the Holy Spirit to convict you of that. There are many people who say, well, you know, Jesus can just forgive. 
They can just say, oh, well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And sometimes that's what we do. It's okay. Don't worry. Listen, sin is never okay. Sin is an affront to Almighty God. David said, to you, against you, and you only have I sinned. He sinned against people. But he understood that the greatest issue was his sin against God. He understood that. The, the prodigal son understood that he had done all kinds of bad things, but his sin was directed in a different place. It actually, all sin is an affront to a righteous and holy God who is just and therefore must punish sin. God cannot just look the other way and say you're forgiven because that would be a denial of his character. He is completely righteous. He is completely just. Listen, if somebody comes out here and they murder someone and they go stand before the judge and the judge says, I'm going to let you off. There, I know you did it. I know you're guilty. All the evidence is there. You even confess that you did, but I'm just going to forget it. Folks, there would be an outcry like crazy, and there should be. That would be a miscarriage of justice. That would be unjust. Listen, if we won't stand for a judge on earth being unjust, how in the world do we think that the creator of all the universe who is righteous and holy can be unjust? Sin must be dealt with. And there are people who, yes, acknowledge that they've sinned, but they don't realize how serious that is because they've never looked at the righteousness of Christ. Listen, in Isaiah's day, it wasn't until he recognized the righteousness and holiness of God that he fell down and said, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knelt before God. It wasn't something where he just passed out and that was it and didn't know what was going on. He intentionally got on his knees before God, and he was conscious of what he was doing, and he was confessing, God, I am a sinner and I am in trouble. And why was it? Because he had seen how righteous and how holy God is. The Holy Spirit convicts us of not only our sin, but of the righteousness of God. Now, why does Jesus say you need that? Why is it to your advantage that I go away for this? Well, he tells us why. Look again down in verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now, have you ever thought about the connection of that? Now, remember in this whole paragraph where we ended the first half of it last time, he said, it's to your advantage I go away. And now he's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to convict not only of sin because they don't believe in me, but he's going to convict of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Well, listen, when Jesus walked into the room, you recognized your own sin. That's why people weren't, weren't half-hearted about Jesus. They loved him or hated him. That's why the religious leaders couldn't stand him. They recognized who he is. In fact, Jesus told a parable to make that very clear, that at least the top leaders of Israel recognized who Jesus was and wanted to get rid of him because they wanted to try to seize the inheritance of the kingdom of Israel for themselves. Jesus makes that absolutely clear. There is no question about it. 
But you see, when Jesus walked into the temple, they immediately recognized his righteousness. And I want to tell you something. If you're walking with Jesus, there will be people around you that are living in sin that when you just your presence is available, they walk in fear. One of the, I've experienced that a few times in my life. One of those I've shared about with a few of you in recent days. But I was in uh, New Hampshire pastoring and starting a church. It was in our first year, and one of the families that started coming, I went to visit the man at work. He, he ran a Dale Bread store. And I walked in, and there were him and two ladies. He was in the back in his office. You could see a mirror and see him back there, or a glass, see him back there. And they, they were over behind the counter, the checkout counter. And when I stepped in, I noticed that they both went like this and backed up against the wall. I had no idea why. I just went on back. I talked to him. And when I left, I noticed they were still standing against the wall like this. I didn't understand what was going on. The next night was a Bible study night, and he was there. And I said, hey, uh, I noticed something when I came in. The ladies like, went like this and backed up against the wall. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, they're both witches. And he said, when you walked in, they didn't know what the deal was, but they knew something was wrong. And that was their pentagram. They were grabbing their pentagram, and they backed up against the wall. And they didn't move off that wall till you were off, till you were in your car. And he said, they walked up to me immediately and said, who was that guy? We got bad vibes from him. You know, it wasn't me. It was Jesus through his spirit in me. And you see, when Jesus was on earth, he walked into a room and people recognized his righteousness. Even his opponents recognized his righteousness. Even his opponents had to say, he speaks with authority because he is God. But Jesus said, I'm going away. And so for people to understand righteousness, it's going to take the convicting work of the Holy Spirit within them. But he not only convicts of sin and of righteousness, but as you see there in the text in verse 8, and of judgment to come. He says, listen, he is going to, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness, but also of judgment. He is going to, to demonstrate that the sin is so serious, if you haven't got it by now, realizing your sin and realizing how holy and righteous God is, He's also going to convict of judgment. In fact, He tells us why. Look at the end of this section we read, the end of the paragraph, verse 11, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I've already judged the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, the, the chief of this world, different ways to translate the word there. But he says, I've already judged him, and all of those who are aligned with him instead of me are going to experience this judgment. And the Spirit convicts of judgment. Of judgment. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we... I have a responsibility to tell people about Jesus. 
We have a responsibility to tell them about the seriousness of sin and about the righteousness and justice of God. And we have a responsibility to tell them that, listen, if you don't turn from your sin, then you will ultimately stand before the great white throne judgment and you will be judged according to your works and you will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. People say, oh, I don't like that. Don't talk about that stuff. (laughs) Listen. Love tells the truth. Is it more loving to never tell anybody that's the end result? A friend that you care about, a friend that you love, and never warn them that if they reject Jesus, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Is that really loving? Or is it more loving to tell them the truth? Listen, we have a responsibility to tell the truth. And if we love, we will tell the truth. And we will also, after delivering the bad news, say, but if you believe, then Jesus has already taken your judgment for you. That's our responsibility. But you can do all of that, and the person will just look at you stone-faced. Remember I told you about the guy, the second guy up the road, a few houses, who understood he was a sinner but said man there's a whole lot of people down there in your church worse than I am and he had to be convicted of righteousness he also had to be convicted of judgment and I'll never forget the night that he was we had prayed for him since becoming pastor at that church in Virginia I learned later that his his wife and His oldest son had been praying for him for 43 years. Preacher after preacher had told him the exact same things that I had told him. They had shared the gospel faithfully and clearly to the point that when I first heard about him, I was told, you don't even want to go see him because he won't even want you to come in the house. But God used Cindy at a funeral that he attended to comfort his heart in a way that opened the door for Cindy and I to visit on a regular basis. He was a bear hunter extraordinaire. I went bear hunting with him. We became good friends. I would go sit on his porch and we'd drink coffee and watch deer cross the road and turkey. And we'd talk about hunting stories. And I'd share the gospel And it just didn't work. He would finally acknowledge, yes, I understand sin. Yes, I understand righteousness. But he had not really come to grips with the judgment to come. And one day I had a friend in our church preaching and I took him over there and we had dinner. And while my friend Buck's wife and Cindy were in the kitchen cleaning up from dinner, The three of us were sitting in the living room, and I told my friend, you give it to him with everything you got. And he looked at him and said, Buck, thank you so much for dinner. You know, you and I will probably never meet again, at least on this earth. And there's no way, after all of your kind, gracious hospitality, I could not let, or I could let this moment go by without talking to you about the most important thing in all of life. Could I share with you about Jesus. He, as he shared the gospel with Buck, I sat there praying 
and looking at Buck's eyes. And I could see that the Spirit this time not only convicted him of sin, not only of righteousness, but he came to grips with judgment. And Wendell looked at him and said, does that make sense? And he said, yes. And he said, would you like to receive God's free gift of eternal life right now? And Buck said, yes, I would. And he got down on his knees and he turned around to the couch put his face in the couch and right then his wife and Cindy came walking in realized the holiness of the moment tears running down their face as Buck prayed trusting Christ as his Lord and Savior that night at a service we gave an invitation I was just starting to explain the invitation the piano had not played he was sitting right over here about where the Williams are. He stood up and he started running down the aisle at 77 years old. Takes me by the hand and said, Mark, I am serious about what I did tonight. I want to follow Jesus how much ever time I have left. Listen, nothing I could say would ever do that. I have no authority to absolve anyone's sins on this earth. None. But the Holy Spirit does, did, and continues to do so day by day. So what do we do? I began by asking you, what does the Holy Spirit do? And this is a first of several sermons. And we learned that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers. But what is our part as believers? I believe that one of the greatest prayers you can pray for a lost person is to pray the word of God right back to him every morning when I pray I pray for you and I pray for my family and everybody in this school and I pray for people over at Open Bible where we're doing our, our interim and I pray for other people that God brings to my mind but every lost person that I pray for I pray Lord I pray that you will convict him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And then that you'll, they'll hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can come to faith in Christ apart from hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But no one can come to faith in Christ without the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It takes the Word of God and the Spirit of God to bring someone to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the first week of April of 2010. The previous Sunday night, I had revealed the Christian Fellowship Baptist Church and to pastors from all over the state of New Hampshire that were at a meeting that God had called us to start Northeastern Baptist College. And that we were going to be leaving in two months. And stepping out in faith to start the college in 2013. A little over three years away. The work was daunting. But also the work at Christian Fellowship Baptist Church was daunting. And so I gathered 
my staff and key leaders one day that week, and we were gathered in my office. We were talking about all the things that needed to happen over the next two months. And as we were doing so, a young lady who was working the front desk came in and said, Pastor Mark, there's a guy here, and he wants to talk to somebody. One of my staff members jumped up, and I said, no, let me get this one. You guys just sit here and relax. And I walked out, and I saw John. John looked pretty rough. He was pretty rough. And he said, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And I said, sure. He said, listen, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. But I was driving by, and as I was driving down the road, something just got a hold of me, and fear struck me. And I knew I needed to come in here and talk to someone. I shared the gospel with him. John trusted Jesus. I was his pastor for only two months. But I was back there not quite a year ago. And one of the first people to come to greet me was John. With his wife and his daughter, who then was his girlfriend. And they were about to break up. And God had completely, radically changed John's life. And it wasn't because of my authority. It wasn't because I went out and got him. Though we should go out and get him. But it was because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You and I need to understand that one of the greatest things we can do to bring people to faith in Christ is to get on our knees, pray for them by name, and say, God, send your spirit to convict them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Father, we come before you today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it teaches us, the way it instructs us. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would work. Father, that you'd work in our lives, that you'd work through our lives. But Father, I pray that you would teach us to pray for lost people. And God, I pray that you would teach us to not rely on our own words or our own ability to save anybody. But Father, to recognize that it takes the convicting hand of your Spirit. And Lord, I ask, God, that your Spirit would move all across this town all across Vermont. God, that your spirit would move in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine, New Hampshire, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware. God, that your spirit would work throughout the entire Northeast. Lord, that your spirit would even work in Washington, D.C., convicting men and women and teenagers and boys and girls that are lost 
convicting them of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. And then, Father, help us to join you in that work by praying to that end. And Father, help us to join you in that work by being ready to share the good news of Jesus. At any opportunity, without sugarcoating it, telling the bad news, but then telling the wonderful good news. Partnering with your spirit to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.